Welcome podcast listeners to the Spears Podcast. I'm your host, Toby Carson. Spears is a public theology podcast that helps successful people live more philosophically by creating brave spaces of shared meaning. Each episode features an extended interview with a different athlete, scholar, educator, entrepreneur, politician, or activist, and how they think theologically and live well in society. Recently, I spoke with Dr. Howard Stevenson about racial literacy, prayer and protest, and the psychology of proximity. We discussed the integration of his work as a psychologist within the frame of racial threat, the need of racial socialization, and how people deal with and heal from situations of racial trauma. Dr. Stevenson is the constant Clayton Professor of Urban Education at the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the Executive Director of the Racial Empowerment Collaborative designed to promote racial literacy in education, health and community institutions. His most recent research focuses on helping children and adults develop and use assertive coping strategies during face-to-face microaggressions. Key to this racial healing work is the use of culture to reduce in-the-moment threat reactions and increase access to memory, physical mobility, and voice. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Stevenson, Mm -hmm. thank you for your time. As a professor, clinical psychologist, and researcher, what does it mean for you to live philosophically? Hmm. Um, Well, in a sense, and thank you for the question, uh, Toby, that um, it's about, you know, meaning in the sense of it's something worth... uh, what my existence in a sense that what what to what degree of and what i'm doing or what i'm interpreting in the world meaningful in connection to why i'm on the planet mm-hmm. uh, in connection to what i think is important to be happening in the world at the time and so um it changes how you think about decisions to speak or be a part of something or not mm-hmm. um, um, it, it, decisions to think about income and salary, um, decisions about relationships, uh, how you're going to spend your time with people or not, um, because you could be, uh, those decisions matter um, and you could waste time, mm-hmm. waste, waste meaning mm-hmm. if you're doing something with people or uh, on an issue that isn't in your sense of purpose. And I think that's important. Um, and I've had mentors over the years who've talked about meaning and purpose almost all the time for some reason, but um, it's really important to, 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 to use faith and meaning to, to guide decision-making. Yeah. I've had the pleasure of getting to know you over the last weeks and months, and I'm intrigued by your work around racial literacy, around forming uh, teachers and students uh, in education and building this kind of racial awareness. I'm wondering, could you kind of give a critique about what's going on in the U.S. currently around race? 
mean, mm-hmm. 2020 witnessed what many have called an awakening. Mm-hmm. I would argue to an extent, this was just a mere repeat of 2014 and, and earlier times. Could you provide an insight and critique of race currently in the US? Yeah, I think we're in a dance around race and we've, we've been in this dance from the very beginning of, of, of the founding of the country. And that is around who is more important than, than who, who is mm-hmm. more smart. Um, and, and white supremacy um, has been a major part of the founding of this country. And so we're always dancing between whether we're going to admit to that or not. Mm. And I think the, the particular racial drama that keeps repeating itself is a sense of uh, trying to come to an awakening of who we say we are and yet still holding on to white supremacy and, and then fail at who we actually are mm. um, in a sense. So there's a dance of saying we want these egalitarian ideas, we want these ideas of democracy, we want these ideas of fairness and justice, and even humanity. But but white supremacy says, technically, that's not exactly what we really want. We want the image of that, but the reality of it is, is, is more about power. And so every so often we, we get challenged on our ideas and our views and our narratives. And then we succumb for a while, but then we return back to the notion of, of, of power and, and not humanity. And I think mm-hmm. uh, there's several times where you have both this awakening and this uh, awokeness, and then you have a retrenchment or yeah. backlash. And, that's, and it's usually violent, it's, and it's usually um, hopeful and violent at the same time. I think it's a really good image that you use around this idea of dancing. Why do you think around the notion of white supremacy, people get so threatened when it is probably, no, it is uh, an appropriate critique of what's going on, especially married to power. Is it dissonance between who people think they are and what's actually happening? Or is there something deeper going on? I think that dissonance captures it. Um, But part of it is a sense of, actually, um, I would argue, not facing the question you asked earlier about what, what is the purpose and meaning? How do I define myself uh, mm-hmm. or my faith with a sense of meaning? And do I have an evaluation of it? So um, I think the idea is what we want to believe we are, a story that props us up in a particular way as balanced fair, just, and humane. It's hard to maintain that and power at the same time. And so the, the fact of what makes it a dance is a failure to face who we are and, and a failure or fear, and I like the word threat more so, mm-hmm. um, that I might be found out not to be this particular narrative or story. And I think, you know, humanity would appreciate I would think even faith could appreciate that um, that I'm not perfect or not as humane or not as just as I like to think I am or tell people that I am would be a you know would be an example of humanity it would be a demonstration of humaneness as opposed to somehow a failure or threat to my existence if I have to maintain an image 
and for that image to be challenged as a threat to who I am, I think is, is part of the dance. And so some of the dance is how long can I keep hidden who I actually am, just as human as everybody else, mm-hmm. using power and violence as a way to maintain that, that lie or narrative. The threat is what if people find out or, or what if people realize that the narrative isn't true and so i must go to extremes and some of us acquiesce to this in a way yeah um because even though we also believe in those ideas we also think of hope for those folks who are trying Mm. um but 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 you know um they appear to be quite open to, to to these ideas and yet you know, there's still this holding on to power, even from Um, the nicer folks. Yeah, Uh, which is akin to what I guess Martin Luther King would talk about in his letter from Birmingham jail. It's these, you know, nice white moderates who think they're doing a good job, but they're actually part of the problem as well. Absolutely. And that's a great example, um, in my view, of a of the kind of, you know, what, what the particular tension for him in that letter was, was a coming to a realization of, you know, if I am talking about a dream and, and I have frames uh, um, and, and brought meaning to the dream as a collective meaning that mm-hmm. we all can participate in. Mm-hmm. And yet there, there is a, a different dream that people are having and that they're having a very different set of rules and values and strategies to bring about that common dream that isn't really about commonality or collectivity or unity Um, so he's pushing up against some pretty powerful faith leaders you mentioned a lot about power one of my good friends here in the bay ben mcbride would say in this wrestle or dance with power um, what's the point of getting to the promised land if we become pharaohs on our sojourn? <laughs> is, is part of the pursuit substituting out white power with black power? Or is there a creative third way that is, I guess, more collectively pursued for all of us? Say, say it one more time. Is, is it a pursuit of power that we want to, uh, I guess, supplant white power with black power or white power with Asian mm-hmm. power? Is it really a dance around race or is there a creative third way that we should be pursuing this collectively? I think race is one place it plays out. Mm. Um, and um, I think it is, is it a, is it a fight for identity? Um, I think it's not the only place it plays out, but I think it's a major place um, because we created these ideas in contrast to. So many of us, you know, we think about how do you develop an identity? And sometimes it's based on your own life experiences, mm-hmm. uh, which is true. But you can construct an identity to be not something else. And I think in a way we've done that in this country and race has been one of those other things you've been contrast, we've been contrasting. And so um, it, it's not uncommon that the narrative 
uh, of identity is around race, around whiteness, around what white represents as powerful, but it's always to diminish something indifference to it. And so I think um, where else does it go is the question from race, as opposed to race is not the, I mean, race is not the only thing, but, um, you know, uh, the fear is, um, what if I'm not powerful? What if I am like everybody else? Mm-hmm. The ideas of sameness, justice, uh, balance, harmony um, are rooted in a deeper fear of what if I'm, I am actually like everybody else. Mm. And I think psychologically, you have a public image that represents those ideas, which is a mask, but the tension, the tension is always, if I'm gonna be who I am, if my identity to grow is to be really in charge and powerful, what if that's not possible or true? Threat comes from that, that dynamic. How do I deal with, what if this narrative isn't actually true? How much work and energy must I go through to maintain this narrative? And so part of that uh, negotiation or part of that threat is then attempting to navigate who I think I am compared to who I really am. Yes. In your work, you talk a lot about racial stress and racial trauma. For our listeners, in your work, could you define those terms and how these experiences impact people at different stages of life? How does that that narrative impact people? Mm-hmm. So part of part of it is an, an, an interesting question because it's it's not simply what happens to individuals; it also happens to what hap- what what happens to individuals in systems or in relationships. And so, the way in which folks are held accountable or not held accountable from early childhood on up, um, from access to healthcare on up, as a as a you know for for. Uh, maternity resources on up um, to to uh, you know um, um, to to becoming elderly, those systems and those relationships are reflections of what is possible, and I think that's that's we can look at healthcare, we can look at justice, we can look at education, we can look at um, wealth. Uh, opportunities, and you might see elements of how that notion of supremacy or that narrative plays its way out, and and um, with benefits and detriments. I don't think it's just one or the other. So you know where you're born matters in, in in that process. Who has access? I think is a really good question, and who doesn't have as much access mm. to 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 life resources from from infancy. So does that effectively mean that here in the US and possibly in the West, that people are denied access based on not only interpersonal relationships, but also the system in which they're, uh, in which they enter life in? Right. So let's say you were born into a family where the parents have a better chance of being hired in a, for a job. Mm-hmm. And that in those hiring positions or those who hire have swallowed the Kool-Aid of uh, who's better and who's smarter and who's more prepared, who's better fit. That um, very well-meaning Christian, you could even say 
civil rights folks feel very strongly that they want to do something about racial injustice. Yep. But they still have never questioned when you look at the history of their hiring practices to change who gets to, to be hired in that around race, around gender, around wealth. And so you have to use other kinds of data than people's own self uh, or, or faith or, or beliefs and in social justice. And you could argue that uh, if those parents get the job, get access at, 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 or less rejection over time, that that child is going to grow up in a very different world mm. uh, in a different life. And um, the question is, how much do we know? How, how, how aware are we of the, of the pervasiveness of this discrimination with respect to hiring of black and brown people? Yeah. Right, or getting loans mm-hmm. or, or having come back from World War II, being able to use the GI Bill that they were promised or not, yep. uh, or, or, or had the GI Bill, but could not actually you know, build a house in the places where others could build. Uh, so you were a hundred miles from a factory that would have made, you know, you could have gotten a job, but you had to drive to that job. You can't live in the neighborhoods around that job. And then say, and then ask, what impact does that have on one generation, two generations later? And so, and so, as people not only understand the history of certain places and spaces, in the fact that with things like redlining and uh, certain legal frameworks that actually marginalise people of colour, what absolutely. What, what other tools do you think can help people understand how systems can be racist or marginalized? How can people better read a system? Um, and what tools uh, do you mm-hmm. think are helpful yeah. in doing so? Um, one tool I'd like to come back to is the one of how people use meaning or philosophy or faith in their understanding of the world or not. Yeah. And that is, um, and you could say there are biblical examples in which we should expect discrimination in the world yeah. as, and look for it as opposed to be, oh, aha, isn't this interesting, mm-hmm. right? So why are we not somehow discerning or, or perceptive or looking for the kind of disparities if, if Jesus says the poor will be with you always is a function of the structures of the world? Mm-hmm. that maintain that. It's not like poor people by their inherent, by, by their sort of uh, uh, nature going to somehow stay in the condition of poverty. And I think that's one thought. So what are, what are the philo- meanings that we take in the world without a lesson? But the lessons that are necessary, we know um, most people don't have an understanding of structural racism, you know, yep. regardless of your racial background. So we don't have a sense that a decision in a, in a council meeting um, for city council uh, could change the lives on a, on a street corner over the next two days, two months, <clears throat> two years in ways that are incredibly powerful, right? We don't even connect po- political decision-making to outcomes or let's let a business in, um, we'll build a stadium here um, or you know, all of that relates to whether this neighborhood gets a school and that can be very racial. But one of my colleagues has been using, since Courtney Cogburn, 
for trying to partner and she's been using virtual reality. She's been work using it mostly with white people and uh, she's out of Columbia School of Social Work. And what she noticed is that particularly for white people who've gone through virtual reality where you put yourself in the place of a, a young boy, Michael, let's say at six years old, yep. black male, and then at 16 and then at 30, as they go through life and experiences and it deepens the awareness um, emotionally of uh, uh, what, and what she would say, you can see an increase in racial empathy because folks did not have a visceral sense of what it's like to be in the place. I can watch videos all day long, right? <laughs> and even if I go to Just Mercy, my brother's movie, mm -hmm. you know, they're gonna say that is wrong, wrong, wrong. And that shouldn't happen, but I don't carry with me the understanding of what it's like to be thought of as inferior um, just while walking or, or how this decision over here relates to that decision, to that child's life yeah. and mortality. And yeah. so virtual reality is one way uh, that has helped some people get a sense. You know, what if it's, what if, um, and I know others have thought about, what if I were on the border uh, being chased by ice and I became a, a refugee <clears throat> and I immerse my life and self into that and what it's like to be chased and hunted under those conditions, fleeing from, now it's hard to, it's hard to recreate the sense of fleeing from oppression in Central America or Mexico, wherever. Yeah. The question is, it is quite a different world if I know what it's like to be harassed just because I'm brown. <laughs> and let's say for and I bring in my children with me. right so yeah. I think that can bring us to a place the other thing that she's working on is data visualization through virtual reality that is what if you could be on a Brooklyn street corner and in literally um and she describes this way better than I could um you could watch that street corner or that neighborhood change over two days two months two years and the people in it change mm. and the opportunities in that neighborhood change just as a function of decision-making that had happened, you know, uh, either in, in, in a council meeting or in a particular government office. We need to see that happening in real time. We could show you two days, two months, two years, and you watch the changes, you watch the bodies, you watch the people and what happens, what disappears, what stays, how, and you know you could see that over gentrification, and then maybe you might get what that structural racism sort of looks like. And um, uh, so those are ways I think. And I think the face-to-face -face encounters uh, yeah. are absolutely essential in our work in racial literacy. We're just trying to say what, how do people actually talk about racial stuff when they're face-to-face? -face? It's incredibly threatening and overwhelming. Most people run from it. And um, so we have strategies to help people who want to navigate that as well. I'm glad you brought up gentrification. I was going to use that as an example of how economic policies and uh, economic power changes neighborhoods. Yes. And I think what you bring up in regards to virtual reality is that it creates a degree of proximity. People. Yes. People yeah. generally don't know how to read a system because they're not proximal to it. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. 
And so using technology, they're able to, you know, build, and I think we talk about this a lot, build that empathetic muscle to go, oh, what is it like to walk in, in another person's shoes? Yes. How does talking about racial experiences in your work do that? And why is it important to build racial literacy? Well, we start always with a story and, um, and based on a proverb, the lion's story will never be known as long as the hunter is the one to tell it, which is very helpful for me navigating the racial spaces being a pen uh, as the only black professor in a, in a department, psychology department at the time. But it was, it was true even before that. I just found it when I first, like 30 some years ago, this proverb, but part of it meant that, man, everybody has a racial story for me, that's what I took it as. Everybody's racial story is important and powerful. And my story is not better than your story. And your story is not better than my story, which means I have a right to define my story. And it's no one else's fault if I don't know my own racial story. And the problem there is if you don't know your racial story, other people will narrate for you and they will distort your own narrative. And once you're in someone else's narrative, just as we described the narrative of white supremacy, once you're stuck in that narrative, you have to pay the cost of trying to keep that alive. And if it's not true for you, you're gonna be working really hard your entire life uh, with, with health consequences, I would say, but and life consequences and relationship consequences. But uh, if I know my own racial story, and I think this is true for white, black and brown folks, and I believe in that with its, with its shame and its triumphs, um, you're gonna have a harder time knocking me off course. And I think mm -hmm. that's a humanity reality. And so I believe everybody, regardless of where we're working on. And, and the hard thing about these conversations is the fear is if I'm actually who I really am, will you dismiss me? Will you dehumanize me, mm -hmm. right? Which is the other side of the fear of maintaining sort of white supremacy is the, the larger question is, will you treat me worse than I treated you, you know, <laughs> right? And in fact, in story, we get a chance to humanize everybody. Mm -hmm. I get to humanize. You tell me your narrative. I'm going to tell you mine because it's the only thing I really got. And I'm going to, and, and, and that includes for me, uh, parents who diametrically oppose culturally, father believe in church 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and racial stuff for him is you're not supposed to get physical. Um, it's God's job. It's, uh, he believed in retaliation. It's just a spiritual retaliation. And he says, you know, you don't have to get physical. God's job one day in that great get in the morning and better by and by, there will be justice. Uh -huh. God will get them back. So mm -hmm. he believed in retaliation. He didn't say you had to just take it and, and keep on moving, but he said you didn't have to get physical. My mother from North Philly, she said, nah, she's more Malcolm X like. Not only do you have to get physical, you can pick up inanimate objects to help you in the cause. Mm -hmm. Very different set of politics, but um, it is part of my story. It's part of my family story. And that's what I'm coming with. Not everybody has that. People have something different. But for my white friends and brothers and sisters who also, um, when we work with them or we have on my team, I have a very multicultural team. I expect everybody to bring their own racial story. And it takes a while. It may take a while. It may take a decade for you really feel fully comfortable um, and we're always discovering more to it. But my, my uh, sense is um, 
when you tell your story and I've seen it, it changes the room. It changes what, how you're going to come at me with the racial mumbo jumbo. Because mm-hmm. I'm being honest with you. This is what I grew up with. Yeah. And so to kind of dive a little bit into your story, with the work that you do, uh, what role does your faith play as a professor, clinical mm-hmm. psychologist, and a researcher? How does kind mm-hmm. of this integration frame and form your ongoing work, both personally and publicly? Well, I think it is, you know, it, it's, it's not disconnected from my parents and the work that I've been studying for 30 years is called racial socialization. Does it matter when family talk to kids about yeah. race? Does it help them navigate race? And it just so happened that my, my father was very much about church and very much about thinking that's the way to solve the world's problems. Um, and yet uh, in, in watching him at times, he, he wasn't as interested sometimes or, or wanting to tackle the political civil protest angle of, of racial oppression, but his faith was, was consistent in what he expected that you know, prayer changes things. My mother, on the other hand, was used to more getting in, in protest, very invested. And so um, both of them were Christians. The difference is my father would be praying, my mother would be protesting. So one, one is an embattlement and the others in sort of patience and prayer and planning. And so those are the two strategies that I've been using in our work around racial literacy that sometimes you've got to process, prepare, think through, pray but other times you gotta protest. You can't just be not speaking up. That's not, that's not there's a fight that's necessary. And, and I think uh, the way that I'm teaching racial literacy now is for folks to be able to develop those two sets of skills that we see lacking. And, and one of those is you haven't really prepared for these racial moments that are so stressful, yeah. you know? And um, being a nice person, being a Christian person is not how we get through life being good. Um, we don't judge most jobs in this world for being good. If an algebra teacher, if I said, you know, you guys need an algebra teacher, I got a friend who's really moral, very uh, upright citizen. These problems counting though, but would you hire him for that algebra job? You probably say, no, um, we need somebody who knows numbers. Being good is not enough. And the same is true for engaging racial challenges in the world, being good is not a, a, a relevant criteria if you don't have the skills. And these skills of preparation and protest, prayer and protest, I would say, is what we try to teach people over time um, in, in, that, in that work. Would you say that Howard is more like his mother or his father? I w- you could ask me uh, at different points in time, that is yeah. true for anybody, uh, more like my mother but it, it wouldn't be fully true. And I was just talking to my colleague and, and friend from college, Dr. Derek McNeil. He's, a, he's, he's the, the president of Seattle School of Psychology and Theology. Wonderful yep. person to also talk to. He knows my parents, I know his parents. And in many respects, over the years, they both had their own influences mm-hmm. in ways that we have forgotten. I guess that's the way I would say it. And so, um, you know, most, I would say, I love my mother's cantankerousness because it gave us all a way to, to inter, not just be nice. Mm-hmm. To not be nice in a world of fake niceness, which 
which is, an, is part of the mask of white supremacy, was wonderful um, with a set of skills and tools to, to find your voice. So I had a model about how to do that. But there are times that the idea of my father's patience and prayer was incredibly powerful, I have to say. From your experience and your walk in faith, what does, what does the Bible teach us explicitly about how to deal with these racial complexities that uh, you find in your work with racial literacy, racial, uh, racial stress, racial trauma? Are there any examples that uh, you kind of either cling to or return to often? Ah, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, there are different ways. Dr. Uh, McNeil and I were talking about last night that the notion of, you know, how do you navigate suffering in the world, particularly enslavement um, of, of black and brown folks um, and genocide and faith. Um, so I've bounced around a lot of places and I think part of the notion of, of grace uh, being sufficient. He described to me a, re, a rethinking of that as sort of um, not just acquiescing to suffering, that grace is, is about contentment, that I, am, I have a place of contentment as opposed to being like long, just taking it. Mm -hmm. And so part of my thought about faith in this notion is in, in biblical sense is is that resistance is very much a part of how we navigate the world. Mm -hmm. um, that black and brown people have gone through suffering, but it's not the suffering that defines us, but it's the, the lens of hope that you have developed by having seen possibility in impossible situations. Mm -hmm. And so not acquiescing to suffering, not saying it's okay, but guess how I see God differently in these moments that's, that, that were possible and I think some of the times I've tried preaching on this, uh, using um, Jacob wrestling with an angel, it's the way that black men have had to wrestle with their own narratives uh, to have their name changed, right? That you're wrestling for some sense of recognition, mm -hmm. uh, that there's nothing wrong with that wrestling. There's nothing wrong with uh, resisting the oppressions that other people have placed on you. And Jacob, you could argue, had been given a whole bunch of names yeah. that were not kind nope. or positive mm -hmm. from birth. And so that is how I see many black men uh, or black and brown people in our society or those who are impoverished, regardless of the race, that you would come in with a story and you have to fight to, be, to, to bring your own story to the table or yeah. else really, and, and uh, it's not about acquiescence, it's really about a struggle. Do you have, um, do you have a story in recent time or so, or maybe earlier on uh, when you were a teenager of where you've had to wrestle in regards to your identity uh, and, and kind of fight for a certain space as a black man? You know, um, you know, I think there's, there's been so many. The one that actually I think about, not, not just for me, I was, I was, Dr. McNeil and I was talking, um, I'm sure I'll come up with something else for me another time, but my father watching him get happy in church mm -hmm. um, 
it was always a phenomenon for me. It was always pretty loud and pretty boisterous and pretty demonstrative. And I wrote an essay once about, <laughs> and I will get to the answer to your question, um, about what's it like for a five-year-old to see their father get happy, right? And and how scary it is and the noise for a five-year-old. You, you can't even see over the pew, right? You just hear things as a little kid in a pew uh, with your brother and sister. And I thought it was pretty funny, actually. And I went through the whole thing. And um, in a black church, it starts off as a yell and then, and you don't never, and we used to get lifesavers from him in order to, and we always thought lifesavers just kept us from dying in those moments. But in fact, they actually, because <laughs> we would suck on them, hoping nothing bad would happen. But as you get older, you realize the meaning of it. And I think in talking to Derek, talking about my father, to answer your question is that he was getting happy, separate from my interpretation of it, he was fighting to demonstrate his own, he needing to protect his own way about the world, how he was different. Um, and so, you know, people can catch the spirit in a black church, but there, there's a uniqueness to it. And his uniqueness, I thought he was resisting other people defining him in a particular way. Mm. Um, and the white world defining him where he had to work. And this was the place where he could, could dance it all out, the stress of it. But uh, his way uh, was a form of resistance um, um, as, as, a, as a man, as a black person, as a black, and as a black person around other black people as well too. So. And so his, his expression of joy and happiness in the church, mm -hmm. um, would, would you say essentially fueled him to maintain his week or, or was yes. like, or like a brave or, or a safe space for him to reinvest in himself before he went back out? Both. And yeah. then part of it is um, you're wrestling with your own identity. Do I have a right to be who I am and what I feel, what I see in the world? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it might've been because somebody sang something or somebody prayed pretty, pretty, pretty powerfully or you just remembered the last time God got you through something. The point was, you still are using this medium um, to assert yourself in this moment. Yeah. And, and that it's okay with God that you are who you are in that yeah. moment. And that's a fight. It's not, a, it's not something that, that comes just naturally, right? Um, yeah. In a world that's constantly saying, you, you're not enough. Um, if I may, I'd like to jump back into... I guess what happens psychologically in uh, racially stressful situations. Does anything happen in the brain psychologically when uh, people encounter racial trauma? And I'm going to assume something does. Could you explain mm -hmm. what happens? Well, um, a lot of the neuroscience research have identified that when people are in a racial moment and the range of stress can, can go from say one, not stressful, 10, very extremely stressful, eight, nine, and 10 would represent a threat level condition. Um, but some people, if they are at an eight, nine, or 10 are gonna respond uh, to a racial moment, no matter how slight or how long, as, as a danger to themselves, And so the fight, flight, or fright response, threat, the set of responses, where you freeze, paralyzed, um, like deer in the headlights, or, or you run away emotionally, physiologically, 
uh, or intellectually, um, or, or you turn it into a militaristic moment. All those are threat reactions to a racial encounter, which we think we see with police and young people, and you have no explanation, or police and people of color in the car, um, anywhere from, you know, Tamir Rice, the police officer, only took six seconds before he made a decision to shoot. Um, and you, you listen to the transcripts of these folks and they're describing the people as not who they really are. They're distorting their age, they're distorting their size. So in the brain, racial stress and threat can distort what I'm actually looking at. 12 year old boy look like a grown man is what, what, what the officer said, Tim Lohman. And, and, um, but we know this is a phenomenon that when you're at your, your most threatened space, and you're, you're thinking about self-protection, your brain loses peripheral vision and hearing. And it's only focused on protecting your head, your heart and your core in such a way that it's either you or me that's gonna get out of the situation. And so distortion is a part of the brain's uh, approach to take, take care of itself. And um, you lose out on information that can help you make a good judgment. And so, Racial stress and trauma is very dangerous if you don't see it or manage it. And that's why a basic racial conversation can feel like somebody, like they're facing a poisonous snake that's about to strike. And, and, and the research suggests that people will engage in involuntary, embarrassing movements. Uh, if you watch their eyes, they're, they're under focused, unable to stay focused, mm -hmm. sweating, and then saying the most weirdest things that people will then later say, I have no idea how that came out of my mouth. What would they say? Well, you know, some of the examples you can have Tiger Woods uh, that are classic, not Tiger Woods, but people talking about Tiger Woods when he was doing golf some. One announcer, um, it's probably can be found, she, she um, was talking about his, his record and his success. That was the streak, uh, that he was unstoppable, that they would end up having to take him out back and lynch him. I think I'm paraphrasing. And then um, she claimed to be a friend of, of Tiger Woods. And when she was challenged, she said, I have no idea how that, um, but we know this is common in the work of racial threat. That is, if you were facing a poisonous snake, you might be surprised what some people might actually do. Um, and every horror movie uh, really depends on making sure at least somebody gets eaten by the monster because they just, stay stuck where they are, right? That's it. <laughs> um, but saying the darndest things and doing the darndest things in these moments are hilarious, but they're real in a sense. Wow. So I'm guessing then that these kind of uh, racial stress and traumatic moments can actually be unlearned and retrained. I believe so. And I think part of it is that we have already been trained to see different people and moments as threatening to my life. And I would say that's part of the narrative of white supremacy includes this kind of training, that you have the right, the justification to use force and violence when you are experiencing that level of threat, as opposed to, it could be me, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, you tell a story about an interaction you have with your son as he reflects on the George Zimmerman. And how did your, yes. your work retrain uh, someone in these moments? I believe it's recast theory. What is it and 
uh, how does it contribute to, I guess, unlearning and relearning? So um, the, re the research we've been doing for 30 years is, is racial socialization. Was, it doesn't matter when parents talk to kids about race. We know more now that it's not just parents, it's educators, it's friendships, it's, it's social media. And so those are training opportunities to learn how do I negotiate racial politics with other people. Um, but what we realize is that sometimes even what parents say was vague. It wasn't specific. My father might say, look, if you lay down with dogs, you're gonna get up with fleas. And you're supposed to figure out the civil rights message in that, in that, in that proverb. Racial literacy is about how much more specific can we be? So we don't have to guess anymore when these racial moments are gonna come. We know more now and we know how people will react. And so can we be better prepared? And so skills is a better way to focus on problem solving these moments, as opposed to sayings or interactions or hoping our kids pick up from what, what, what others do, parents do. So racial literacy is the ability to, to, to read, recast and resolve racially stressful moments. And what we learned about racial socialization is the more people talk to children, the more children said their parents talked to them, they did better on a host of emotional and, and mental health outcomes, academic achievement, uh, anxiety management, anger management, depression management. And so why is that the case? And the case is, is that, wow, if I, if I have been prepared for the snake that I think is coming at me, I'm not so afraid of snakes. Racial moments do not scare me as much because I've seen this before. I've practiced with this before. It's not new. And I don't have to use fight, flight, or fright as a reaction. So racial literacy is if we teach people to read, recast, and resolve, reading is do I see the racial moment? Some people don't see a racial moment, so they can't solve it. The racial elephant in the room is stinking up the place. They don't smell it or see it. Reading is fundamental to seeing and interpreting a racial situation. Recasting is, let's say I'm at an eight, nine, and 10, and I'm stressed. How do I bring that down to a five, six, or seven to make it manageable? And yeah. we use mindfulness an approach called calculate, locate, communicate, breathe and exhale to recast, uh, calculate is what feelings am I having right now? Locate is where my body, do I feel it? Be mm -hmm. specific and communicate is, do I notice self-talk happening during the racial moment? Oh, this person must think I'm a blank because I don't have anything to say about this topic. Uh, and memories are going back in time, remembering previous past racial experiences communicate to ourselves through images and self-talk, and then breathing and exhaling um, in very slow, deliberate ways allows us to manage these moments much more effectively. So that's recasting. And then resolving is, does all of this together help me make a healthy, socially just decision uh, that is in an underreaction um, uh, or overreaction? And I'm matching, I'm actually behaving not just talking about social justice and behaving in a socially just way through the decisions that I'm making. That's what resolving means. Have you a story in which this work has transformed someone's encounter racially? Um, yeah, so we do see a lot of folks, you know, and parents as well as educators but I've had many stories of folks who were overwhelmed, but also surprised that in just a very short period of time, their going back to a racial memory jarred them so much that it felt like it just happened yesterday, something that might've happened 
10 years ago, 20 years ago. For some octogenarians, it's been seven decades or mm -hmm. longer. They remember a racial incident in their childhood as if it happened yesterday yep. and can connect that to how every racial experience they've had triggers that same kind of fight, flight, or fright response. And they want to do over. Yep. And when we take people through the process, the question would be, do you find yourself having more agency to, 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 to manage what's going on? And so there are many different stories I, I could tell you, but I, I would argue that it doesn't take long. For people who are willing, yep. you're not willing is not going to work. They find much more agency to listen, to yep. stay in a conversation longer, uh, and then to share their voice. And then I would argue even maybe better is to take feedback and criticism without uh, using abusing power or, or walking away. That's good. Last question. In your work, how would one's imagination, both social and spiritual, shaped by your work and your interactions with Jesus, how does it contribute to their reorientation uh, to themselves, to their community and to the greater society? Um, I think one way this work can, can do that is that you have to rethink what Jesus means to you in this sense. And that is, and many of us, you know, we thought that, you know, church was a vehicle for us to learn more, to then do the work. And in, and in fact, you know, thinking of Jesus as disruptive uh, wasn't just about the world, but also, and, and not just about the church, but also about me, that my actual conceptions of faith are disrupted by thinking of Jesus as realizing I'm supposed to be in this racial fight. That's not for somebody else. I'm supposed to be in it. I may not be good at it, but I'm responsible for it despite my experience. And yeah. that, that was, that was a different kind of Jesus, you know, because civil rights, you know, showing up at a black church when it's time or Martin Luther King day were, were the extent but what if I'm contributing to this is yeah. the question. And I think that's a disruptive experience. And that's what Jesus tends to do in my view. That's good. Dr. Stevenson, thank you for your time. I've loved every moment of this and I look forward to reading your work, but also getting you back on the podcast sometime soon. Thank you, Toby. I appreciate it. Take care.